How's it going, Rebecca? Hey, Joe. Going super well. Enjoying Munich in summer, the side. What's Munich in summer like? Well, it's actually warmer than I thought. So, I mean, we've only just entered summer and, you know, it's chilling around 25 degrees, some days hitting 29 and it's like wind still, which is amazing. So people have flocked to the lakes and stuff. Um, totally more vibey than winter. <laughs> I think I must have hit it like right at the uh, kind of the end of spring or something. I'm not sure what happened, but anyway. Yeah, we're still deep in spring, actually, to be honest. I think it's really heated up quite a lot since you were here. Okay. Well, it's it's my gift to you. So oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so awesome. Well, on the show today, we have uh, Rebecca Taylor. For um, people who don't know who you are, do you want to give a quick intro? Um, yeah. So um, basically, I come from South Africa. First interesting you know, fact about me. Um, I studied electronic engineering with computer science, and that was, I don't know, about 11, 12 years ago. Um, yeah, I did my master's in a similar vein, PhD in Bayesian statistics, hmm. kind of got into data science that way. Um, and then worked in a large corporate for five years, um, did a lot of very various things, including lots of data analytics and trying to do machine learning where possible, but it was quite an old school company and then pivoted into consulting for about five years. Um, yeah, in the data space, went in thinking I do data science and did everything but data science. Um, <laughs> and oh. then, yeah, <laughs> I can talk about that later. But yeah, and then at the moment, I'm, I've joined a really big company again. So gone back the the full corporate cycle, um, Little Digital, which is part of the Schwartz Group. So, I mean, I'm sure this, maybe some of you guys know about Little. There's also some in, in USA. Um, it's basically retailer, right? Um, yeah. yeah. And I'm the, the lead ML ops engineer there and also, yeah, splitting my time up a bit, which is quite tricky. So I'm heading up the personalization um, side of things as a te- well, not heading it up, but I'm the tech lead for that, and that's like anything to do with personalization. Um, so yeah, wow, it's quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> quite busy. Yeah, when we were hanging out actually uh, in Munich, it, I, I think I asked you uh, about Bayesian mm-hmm. uh, stats. Uh, I don't meet a lot of Bayesians, and so when I do, I uh, um, I'm always curious, like what. Uh, what what drove you towards the Bayesian route versus the uh, the frequency uh, frequentist route? I know that's like sort of the uh, East Coast West Coast battle. Um, if I were to use a American comparisons, so yeah, I mean for sure. I think when I when I started that journey, um, you know, the Bayesians weren't necessarily like losing, um, and at the moment they probably are. <laughs> so you know, given all these new generative models, I think the frequentists have kind of taken front and center at the moment. So. Um, back then, you know, it was like kind of the beginning of the, well, when I got interested, that was even before I did my PhD. So it was in my undergrad, I met a prof, um, he taught us our signal processing course, which went into like a data science mm. machine learning course. Um, so it was like really kind of the the fundamentals um, of data science, you know, kind of like the, the PCA, LDA, all of those type of things, kernel methods, really mathematical kind of take on it um and then you also taught us the probability theory side and like everything to do with like um you know uncertainty and how you can you know like model uncertainty and that's where i got really interested in it and um even like causal modeling a bit and Chudia pearl he introduced us to that type of thing and that was like really interesting to me um yeah and that's kind of how i got into it at that point i just loved the fact that you could kind of model this uncertainty and um, at that point, like neural nets were just starting to pick up, right? And mm. you needed a lot of data at that point. So when I chose my topic, there wasn't a lot of data available. So I was like, mm. <laughs> Bayesian right. 
the fit, right? <laughs> and we had a lot of domain knowledge we could encode into these models. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, I, um, another friend of mine, he's, he's a Bayesian statistician. He was uh, trying to think of some way to, uh, um, what was it? I don't know. Some alternative to to deep learning, he wanted to, to explore it with Bayes, but I'm not sure how far he got with that. But yeah, it is uh, interesting right now. I think yeah, Jay Pearl definitely like did a good job at bringing the um, the Bayesians back into life. But you know, it, it, everything's a pendulum. I'm sure they'll <laughs> either see their day again someday. But uh, but you know, then then you got into data science and and you were doing data science, but you weren't doing data science. Is that what I heard? Yeah, so it's like the typical recovering data scientist. Uh, yeah. Thing. To me, right? So, I mean, I, I joined the company all, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed to be, you know, doing some real production data science um, in like a quite a modern, smallish startup that just grown actually out of startup phase and then also working with clients. Um, and then it turned out that like most of the problems were not data science related yet, right? Like it's like, oh, but we don't have the data, um, mm. but, but like we need to connect to the service. Oh no, you know, we need like some API layer that can integrate and how do we handle the OAuth, you know, like, and actually pass all the, the pen testing and stuff that's required for the bank, you know, and like just getting to have sign off on our architectures was like, you know, half of the battle. So then basically they put me in a, basically a software engineering team, right? Where what I would now call it as like a mix of data engineering and ML ops or ML engineering. But then it was just like, oh, you're the software guys that also know data science. <laughs> mm. Yeah. And I did this basically in different various like forms and for different clients for about five years. Um, I did also do a little bit of data science. It wasn't no data science, um, right. but that was a real, really small part of it. Um, yeah. Interesting. So what, what, do you have a preference of what you like better? Do you like the engineering or do you like uh, the data science more? Yeah, it's something I struggle with daily. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, really, because like um, there's also um, a lack of um, in the team that I'm in, like one of the data scientists left. So there's like a data science gap and a new data scientist to join. So I had actually some opportunity to do some data science. Mm. And also we've had some really interesting like um, problems that fit the Bayesian paradigm. So um I don't know if you're familiar with uh, marketing attribution and media mix modeling. Those type of things are actually typically done in a Bayesian way. Um, so also looking at like dynamic Bayesian network for our forecasting model. So I played around a bit, even like, you know, in my current role, I got some time to to do some of the data science, which was really exciting again. I was like, oh, this is actually so much fun. But I think I always end up like gravitating towards more like the platform engineering side where, where possible, the architecture um, you know, kind of looking at the end-to-end system side of things because I think that's where, like, unfortunately projects go wrong, right? Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, so there's always some, like, excited data scientists to do the modeling, but there's not always someone that can, like, talk through the end-to-end system, talk to all the different teams, make sure that we aren't missing some key thing that's going to derail the whole project. So I don't know if I enjoy it, but I guess that's what I end up doing. Mm. Yeah, I never heard that story before. <laughs> Not at all. Um, <laughs> you coined the like recovering data scientist phrase. As far as I know, I was the first person to use that. I mean, maybe somebody else had jokingly used it, but uh, um, it's the first one to make it public, I guess. So <laughs> I don't know. Well, back then, I think the term was, uh, I think it's 2015. Somebody's called me a reformed data scientist, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very curmudgeoned at an old age, but uh, or young age, I guess. Um, 
but uh yeah yeah i don't know it is what it is but now you know your your story is uh what you describe is definitely i think common um mm-hmm. you know fortunately or unfortunately i think it, it also though meant that a lot more attention was placed on building the foundation i think than otherwise would have been um maybe looked at right because mm-hmm. if, if we're all doing data science and we're all successful then i guess you you probably don't need all the the fancy tooling it was just that easy um yeah you know but uh, i i don't think in most companies that was a reality right i mean we're talking we're having this discussion for a reason so um <laughs> like- uh, that's interesting um you also mentioned uh, but you mentioned a uh dynamic uh bayesian networks right is that, mm-hmm. is that what you, yeah 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 is that like stan or what what is, is oh so yeah so stan is like one of these probabilistic programming languages yeah um, used so for example i mean most people know stan for profit right so in forecasting like one of the famous models is profit and it actually uses stan under the he- under the hood so it like uses this package com- like command stan and like execute stan um, indirectly, it also sets, sets up like a huge amount of like default parameters and things. Um, you know, the the standard. I mean, the the like profit that we use um, like as a Python package, right? So, I mean, yeah, if you use profit or if you use kind of like the underlying stand code directly, you can do a lot more. Um, there's a lot more things you can tune and tweak. But yeah, like the dynamic Bayesian network stuff. I was actually using this other really cool. Um, um, Python package. Well, it's a Python wrapper of a C plus plus package um, called PyAgrim, and it's actually really, really good for that type of thing. So I've used it for a few, um, you know, Bayesian models, also for like causal stuff. Um, yeah, it, it's really cool, very fast. Yeah, it's really powerful stuff. I, when I, when when Profit came out, that's where I learned about Stand. But I was like, I was, ah. I was surprised because I was like, oh, you're using what? That's interesting. <laughs> Um, because most of the time series stuff was, was based on, you know, Arima or, um, mm-hmm. some sort of exponential smoothing type model and not Stan. I was like, that's, 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 that's cool. Mm-hmm. If it works for Facebook, I guess it, it is what it is. So it's an interesting approach. I mean, there's definitely better models out there. I mean, especially because like, you know, you can tune a lot more, you can do a lot more things if you actually like extend and, and work fully in the in the Bayesian framework. Um, you can actually add a whole lot more different distributions and things like that. I mean, Stan, mm-hmm. I mean, like, yeah, Profit has really like been quite, um, you know, strict, not strict, but they basically set a whole bunch of defaults and um, constrained the problem to make it easy to implement. Um, but yeah, you can really go a lot further. And I think it's, it's like the research world where you get people really focusing and using Stan. I think most Stan users are like really like, yeah, postdocs or PhD students that are, you know, really pushing the boundary Mm. in that sense, but using it in production is mainly probably only done through something like profit. Um, that's what I've seen. Yeah. Same, same. Yeah. That's interesting. So one of the things that we were talking about before the show, and it's something that's been in your mind is, is navigating uh, larger companies mm-hmm. uh, when you're trying to build uh, machine learning models and other um, uh, data solutions. Um, yeah. Walk me through that. What, what, what's, uh, what are you thinking? Yeah. So, I mean, at the moment um, in, in the roles that I'm, I'm in, I'd say roles, cause it just feels like many different roles, right. um, you know, the actual, data science part is once again a really small part. I mean, it's a really important part. I mean, personalization in general um, is something that like you can get horribly wrong and it can be a terrible client experience if, if the models aren't doing what they should be doing. But I mean, a lot of the problems are actually to do with 
um, you know, the end-to-end integration, like, I mean, we're creating vouchers, for example, that need to end up in the front end, um, you know, so it's it's really like, yeah, touching payment systems, touching stock layer, touching, um, you know, like coupon generation APIs and all kinds of things like that. And basically, like, that's just a whole lot of conversations with a whole lot of teams. And then you kind of realize, oh, they haven't actually implemented this one piece. You know, some team hasn't implemented this one piece that like is super critical for your for your project. And then, you know, you have to kind of talk to your um, product manager or, you know, stakeholders up the chain and say, look, <laughs> you know, this thing that we all thought we could do isn't actually possible because this one little piece and, you know, we can get something on the backlog of another team, but it's going to take time. Like, how can we maybe tweak the use cases um, and maybe deliver something slightly different and be really agile, you know, um, to get something out there, right? Um, So, yeah, that's where it kind of stemmed from. Um, Mm -hmm. That's interesting. You mentioned the word agile, and then uh, we're talking about large companies. Are are these (laughs) – do do these things uh, work well together? Well, yeah, I mean, I must even say, like, the word agile is so overloaded, right? I mean (laughs) – I guess, you know, if you think about the whole Scrum Agile, I mean, people have many different ways of thinking about Agile. I should probably say, like, flexible. Um, Yeah, yeah. That's something that's often not the case in these large companies. But, I mean, that's where, like, it becomes almost a skill to build relationships with the right people um, and to, to be able to really be able to communicate, like, what the technical constraints are and um, show willingness to come up with alternatives quickly, right? Um, And that's something, yeah, I find, like, some of the times it actually just means, you know, having long extended chats, explaining things and getting to know the people that you work with, maybe not only 100% in just the business context, trying to understand like what drives them, you know, what are they really trying to achieve, bigger picture within the organization as well. Um, And almost like, I mean, I learned part of this in consulting, um, where people have a problem they're trying to solve and they think this is exactly what the solution is, but often Mm. the solution is completely different. Or even the problem that they're trying to solve might not be the right problem. Um, So it's really like, I mean, it comes down to almost like understanding the business processes, right? Um, And kind of being able to piece together what happens where and where an intervention would have the most value um, and then maybe go through like all the steps to see how could we get that to work. And if there is data available, um, you know, great. If there isn't, which is like 90% of the time, how can we get the data there and get buy-in from the right stakeholders to help you bring that data there Um, in the absence of like a perfect data mesh, right? (laughs) We'll get there someday. Um, Yeah, that's really interesting. So when you're looking at business processes, you know, these sort of operate on a continuum uh, of different overlapping business processes. Like how do you, Mm -hmm. uh, I guess, understand where to start looking and where to stop looking? Wow. (laughs) That's a, that's a really good question. I mean, it's so true. They like overlap so crazily often. Um, I think, you know, in my personal experience, what we've done is we try to, if at all possible, um, you know, start as close to the thing that we're working on as possible um, and then moving kind of in either direction. Um, I mean, one of the examples is we were looking at um, risk. Um, so we had all these risk mm. processes for a bank. So you can just imagine, I mean, there's like anti-money laundering processes, there's fraud processes, there's all like, and, and I mean, for each of these, there's like a whole bunch of different ones that you would do based on like, you know, 
different regulations and different parts of the you know the client base you know based on risk profiles so there we basically um, didn't know where to start we honestly didn't know it was such a confusing story that we actually went and did like if you think in the lean six sigma world they call it like a gamba walk i guess so we yeah. actually had like three of us um that is a you know um, a business analyst and then like me and another data scientist and we basically went and we spent like a whole week sitting <laughs> with these um analysts that basically work they're the ones that actually do the risk like audits or they're basically the ones that work with the client data and actually make a decision like is this like behavior dodgy or is there some pattern that we've picked up is there some sort of um you know ponzi scheme maybe happening under the scene mm. they kind of chase the money and do all the stuff and we spent like hours and hours with them watching how they worked um and then from there basically kind of trying to trace back to where these data sources come from i mean a lot of the times it was just like weird stored procs lying somewhere that would like dump something somewhere else and they would then download it i mean there was crazy stuff happening super excel based and we basically had mm -hmm. to kind of um, figure out where the right data sources would have been for all these things to try and build like automation in so that they would have to do less, they'd have, so that there would be less manual work for them to do. And I mean, that project took months, um, you know, and it was really the business process part that was the, the key, I guess, to actually try and unravel that. Interesting. I think what you described the, uh, the Gamba walk and working with individual contributors is also a very, um, for some reason, people don't do this as often as I would think. It, it's a very underrated uh, um, cheat code. Yeah, um, I, I was actually it. chatting with a friend about this just a bit ago. He's asking, okay, so like, who does a data engineer interface? And, he, and he, it was all the technical people. Then it was also, um, you know, business leaders. And I was like, I think you're missing the the most important part, which is the the business individual contributors, the people who actually understand what's happening and um <laughs> Like, you know, are, are involved in the day-to-day -day processes. Um, like you say, these are the people that make it happen and uh, just go talk to them. It's pretty easy. Or maybe it's not. I don't know. But it should be. So. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's really great. And, I mean, you, they have so much insight. Like, we had people that came up with some of the best ideas, right? Um, and it was, I mean, people that actually are the ones doing the analysis themselves and yeah. have never touched anything to do with like a database. They had no clue what an API was. They had no, no clue about any of those things, but the way they described how they wanted things to be was like, you know, a really cool automation that involved all of these things, but they didn't know how to put that into the right words. So by spending time with them, understanding their language, understanding what they do, we could build that relationship and actually extract that really cool, important information from them and then build something for them that they couldn't have done on their own and we couldn't have done on our own. Interesting. So if you, if you would have taken the approach that you, you described with um, maybe other you know, people that you've worked with or seen where they, uh, it seemed like they were maybe guessing about what people wanted. Um, and then building to that, was that uh, a fair way of describing it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the cases where, I mean, I've also been guilty of that myself, right? Um, I've done it too. It's fine. <laughs> We're mind readers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we built something for um, a bank as well, well, just like a, a business bank. Um, and where we did the whole design and we were literally like... Um, I don't know how many sprints in. It was a good few sprints. And we were so excited because we built this whole like master API thing that called different models. I mean, it was really like something that, I mean, I personally was quite proud of. Um, and then we got like information from them 
um, that basically meant the project would stop <laughs> because, oh. um, you know, we didn't take this one thing into account. Um, and it was like a super businessy thing to do with like, um, they had some commercial agreement with some other um, provider of some risk score and they were just going to go with that. And like, you know, mm. if we'd kind of asked the right questions earlier on um, and understood what this risk score that they were going to get from somewhere would do, then we would have saved ourselves a lot of money. And then also, I mean, they funded some of the, the work that we did and didn't end up delivering. So, I mean, mm. that's yeah, you know, that's the kind of thing that can go wrong. I mean, even in our project now, like it's an interesting team because we've got um, developers that are like, um, you know, from a Java background, like super keen on things like Spring, Spring Boot, all of these like really cool um, asynchronous ways of doing things super fast in Java. And then there's like, you know, a, a data scientist and a half, okay. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> and then there's like, you know, no, like analysts, for example. So it's basically, um, you know, quite a lean team in that sense. And then we've got all this like, um, you know, business um, ideas and stuff coming from like the project manager and like some of the other stakeholders. And I mean, you know, it's so easy to just jump in and be like, oh, we can build this and already like on the Java side, the back end side, start to build some things. Um, and then like in a meeting today, we realized like, oh gosh, like some of the data sources are not there. We thought they were there. I mean, I, mm. I didn't homework properly. I just kind of assumed, you know, that everything is in the data lake and it, and some of it really isn't. Um, which meant that we actually had to change the, the use case completely and even the tech that we were going to use. So, oh, wow. It's a recent, uh, <laughs> you know, mistake. Um, I mean, it, I guess it's something that happens also when you when you're new to a company or new to an environment. Like you, you kind of sometimes make assumptions on the underlying infrastructure or architecture. If you've seen things like patterns a lot, you kind of assume them. But I mean, that's not always the case, and that's something that I've also now recently learned. Don't assume anything. <laughs> Oh, you really shouldn't. And it, it's something I've had to learn the hard way as well, right? Making mistakes of assuming that uh, certain things exist or certain practices <laughs> are followed, right? And you, yeah, mm -hmm. you're, you're a thousand percent correct. Like you should never assume that because it's, uh, there's always, it, you got to go into each project with an open mind because there's always something. Um, and it's always like, a, it's usually, I wouldn't say always, but it's really, it's usually like a really subtle thing that mm -hmm. you didn't pick up on. That ends mm -hmm. up being, you know, sort of the uh, the linchpin of the entire conversation. So, it's, <laughs> uh, but you got to pay attention, right? I mean, it's easy mm -hmm. to overlook this stuff, and because um, you're always trying to find that most obvious, you know, the biggest things to stare at. Um, and sometimes those are the distractions. It's sort of like what a magician does, right? Like they have they keep it focused mm -hmm. over here. Meanwhile, the real action's happening where your where your eyes aren't looking, and that tends to be, at least from what I've seen. Um, uh, if you're trying to do any change management stuff, digital transformation, whatever, it's like it's it's always the thing you're not looking at that mm. will come back to to haunt you. So, yeah, no, that's that's super true. I mean, and it's crazy that there can be so many people in the room and everyone misses it, right? I mean, that's so often the case. Like, it's a whole bunch of smart people, people that have thought about the problem, but then they all kind of miss this like one thing. <laughs> yeah, it happens a lot, and I, I would think it's it's almost. Uh, my, my business partner, Matt, and I described it as a curse of familiarity, um, mm. you know, and, and part of that is if you're so used to looking at something, right, then you're so used to looking at it. I mean, it, it's no different than, you know, the house that you live in or, or wherever, you, you know, you reside. It's like you're used to how it looks. But, um, <laughs> you know, in some cases, maybe there's like a, I don't know, some 
things are misplaced, but you don't, you know, it goes into the woodwork for so long. You just don't even notice it. Right. Like I'm, I'm staring at my, uh, my kids, uh, <laughs> I don't know, place or dungeon or whatever you want to call this, uh, this, this place. But yeah, it's like, I noticed that there's just things where, um, they've thrown them around and it's just, it just sits there. Right. I mean, we gotta, <laughs> so have to remind them. Um, but that's a lot like businesses in a way, right? You get so used to the way you're doing things and you're so used to staring at the role that's right in front of you, right? I mean, most people don't think about other people's roles when they're at work. They just think about what they need to get done for the day and they get it done and they leave. So, you know, the perspective is to step back is the opportunity to step back and look at things from a broader mm -hmm. perspective typically is not there. Yeah, that's, that's super true. I mean, I think something that also comes up that's kind of related to that is um, when you mentioned roles, it made me think of the fact that d people with different roles often come with like really different backgrounds yeah. uh, and like terminology that's used can be completely misunderstood. So, I mean, semantically, there might be totally different meanings um, to the same kind of like word. Like, I mean, recently, like um, we were discussing, you know, PubSub and things like that in different accounts. And we've got a mm. multi-cloud environment, which always gets interesting. Um, and talking about things going over the internet. And, like, I mean, some people misinterpreted that as, like, oh, we're using HTTP, you know. But that wasn't kind of, like, the correct interpretation of, like, no, it's actually leaving the network of this cloud and going over the internet, right? Mm. So, I mean, this came up, like, two meetings later, like, oh, really is that happening oh we thought you were just talking about the protocol as opposed to using something else like you know a messaging transport so really interesting small terminology thing i mean the common one is always like performance-based metrics like you know um where you describe like latency potentially or like um you know those type of things so if you measure them differently um you might end up with a mm. totally different like value for how much time this little microservice has to respond um yeah. Well, yeah. And it comes down to stuff, even like, you know, um, process, there's different types of processing times too, right? Mm -hmm. like when the event was created and when it was received <laughs> and all these things, right. And it's exactly. stuff that you would take for granted, but uh, you know, again, don't assume anything. <laughs> yep. Yeah. yeah that's so true. I mean, that reminds me of like back in the day in my first job, um, like my first data analytics task was like, based of a bunch of Excel files and using pivot tables. And I remember being so frustrated. I was like, this is so weird. Why am I doing this? I mean, I came from like a Python background, but I mean, I needed to generate these things in a way that other like people could kind of use them later. Um, and then I just remember being overwhelmed by like eight different dates. I was just looking through there and I was like, why are there eight different dates? And, you know, how do I know which is the right one and why? And I mean, you know, it was just crazy. I couldn't believe that there were eight different you know, dates for different events and stuff. And like some also based on like calendar offsets and, you know, financial year offsets. And yeah, that was my first like wake up call. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. It, and, and and it's interesting too, because a lot of these, um, like those dates, for example, right? Those, those are probably the result of, um, you know, business processes sort of maybe evolving over time. I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm assuming, but you know, um, you know, it's not like you, you started out with an Excel file and it's like, okay, so we're going to get all these dates in here because we're just that smart, right? Um, I mean, the, the, the luxury of Excel is you can just keep adding new columns to it. Mm -hmm. um, it's also like, pretty <laughs> <laughs> uh, in trouble, yeah. but yeah, it's, uh, that's interesting. But so walk me through this. So, I mean, you're, you're going through these um, discussions with all these teams. 
you know, you're mandated to do uh, machine learning, right? I mean, what's um, is, 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 is it is it is it is it just that easy to do machine learning in a large company? I think yeah, the, the challenge is like you know, really to be able to um, to deliver something of value. Um, to get that first thing out there, right? It doesn't have to be a fancy model. So, I mean, some of our first things are literally going to be like some rule-based, um, inverted commas, model um, based off um, like analytical discovery. So kind of saying like, okay, you know, if we use these thresholds, what will that look like for the population, you know, and what will the impact be on business, you know, with these volumes, right? So, you know, that's kind of the first thing that's going to go out there. Um, and give us some results. And once you have those results, um, then you can start to train models, right? Um, so that's kind of one of the, I mean, there is some data science also involved, like we're doing segmentation and stuff like that. So, I mean, that's more like the unsupervised stuff. Um, but I mean, you know, doing like the clustering and stuff, I mean, that's like a couple of days work. I mean, that was done up front, for example. Then mm. there's iterating with like, the business stakeholder saying, what do these clusters mean to you? You know, like, you know, how can we convert this into meaningful insights that can be used for marketing and general, like, user experience and stuff like that? So a lot of the, um, you know, the data science is very abstracted also into, like, we're using Spark, for example. So, you know, using Spark ML because it was, like, easy, right? We didn't need to do anything fancy for some of these things. Um, And the harder part is like, okay, you know, now we have all of this, how are we going to integrate um, it into like, you know, the full end-to-end business processes? Like, as I mm. mentioned earlier, one of the first things we're looking at is like free shipping vouchers. And there's so many ways of kind of going about that. Um, I mean, we wanted to, for example, include margin information, but there, you know, I mean, as people add and remove things from the basket, you don't want to like have them losing vouchers. So there's a lot of kind of behavioral stuff that you also have to take into account. So I guess my answer is that like the actual machine learning algorithms part is often a small part of it. Yeah. And I mean, because I'm kind of on the more like tech lead end, I end up like passing that on to, to the data scientists and they're all too happy to work on those parts, right? Um, but unfortunately a lot of it is actually end to end stuff. And, um, also just like understanding, um, what is possible, like, yeah, in the front end and also how all the data is stored. So can it even be used in this way? And, and that type of thing. Interesting. How, how do you work with software teams? Cause I'm guessing that, uh, again, assumptions, um, that the software team, uh, you know, maybe they're, they're very heavy into Java Spring, you know, and, mm-hmm. and so forth, right? But maybe they don't understand, okay, so Rebecca's coming to me with this model. What am I supposed to do with this? Um, or I mean, is it, do you have any um, any situations like that? Or does the, does the software engineering team tend to um, understand what you're you're trying to do? No, for sure. It's been like a really big learning um, experience. So what they've actually done is they've split up like product teams. And now um, we actually have two Java developers in our team, Oh, which has actually really been cool in the sense that like we're all learning a lot from them and they're definitely learning a lot from us. So, I mean, there's like the on the websites, front end and back end, they, they have their own like obviously Java developers. But, um, you know, in our team, they've now... Um, assign some developers because they want to have like sort of end-to-end delivery as well Um, and that's been really cool I mean the first two weeks was uh, (laughs) rather tough like I think I explained like the difference between like training and um, you know serving and um, Mm. you know concepts like 
um, batch processing, batch jobs. I mean, they understood some of it, but they didn't have really a data background. So it was really like right. developers. So um, also having to explain like, you know, frequencies of different things, like, okay, training doesn't happen nearly as much as inference, you know, just like those things that you think that people would know, but obviously they don't if they've never worked with data science, right? So, I mean, that was the first couple of meetings. Um, well, I'd say first sprint was just like getting to get the terminology out of the way. And I mean, it mm. still comes up often, like, um, you know, confusion between like, you know, the training data and the data that's needed, um, you know, like the transforms that need to happen, like at inference time. And I mean, that goes into the whole feature store thing, right? So, I mean, this has been something that's, I mean, I spoke to you about it, like in Munich, um, yeah. in a journey <laughs> and we're still going on along this journey. I mean, multi-cloud, it, it makes things also complicated. So we're still busy trying to unpack that and, and understand, like, I mean, it's really a collaboration between like the software teams and the data teams to make this really happen. Um, yeah. The online part of the feature still at least. For sure. And I found that that's usually the hard part of productionizing machine learning as you, at some point, you're going to have to rely on software engineers or, or the app team to uh, integrate what you're doing into the app. That's how that works. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. but um, and they're they're fantastic usually at what they do, right? It, but yeah. Again, it's it, that's one wish I had is I think that there's this. I was talking with somebody last night about this. Um, you know, a friend of mine, she's a software engineer uh, at a company that that does a lot with um you know, machine learning actually. And, and she's, um, but she described that divide between uh, software engineering and, and data as being a very real thing. She's like, Oh, the, the data team sits over there and I, I work on the, uh, the application and we really don't ever talk to each other. And I was like, isn't that exactly what your product is supposed to do? I think that's really interesting. But, uh, you know, she said organizationally, that's, that's how they set it up. The devs don't talk to mm -hmm. the data and the data doesn't talk to the devs. And so, <laughs> I mean, it seems so common, like in the in the consulting world, I saw that as well a lot. Like, I mean, it's almost like the people came from different worlds, like completely, completely different worlds. And they didn't really understand each other's worlds in, in a lot of the, you know, like a lot of the cases, um, which makes your yeah, integration not always so easy. I mean, a lot of the time you get lucky, right? And everyone's like, okay, we're just using Swagger. This is our interface. This is what you get. This is what I get. <laughs> you know, this is what you give me. And I, I, I promise I will give you these error responses. and um, if things go wrong or the right answer will look like this and, you know, here's the latency, you know, whatever, whatever. I mean, that's how it often does end up happening. Um, but then there's the cases that get really hard where almost on the platform side there needs to be designed. And, and I find that the mm. harder part. If the platforms are set up properly, then it's just some contracts often, right? Hopefully. <laughs> um, and I mean, a lot of the times I was lucky enough to work um, in places where th these things were set up quite well in terms of like, um, the platform side of things, right? But I mean, you know, and often in, in, in larger organizations, if if they're kind of coming from like a more old school background and they weren't initially data driven, then that isn't the case. And then, yeah, then, then, it's, then it's a much harder conversation. Um, <laughs> what, what are the prerequisites for a, uh, you know, a, a data platform if you're at a mature company? Well, I mean, obviously there's different ways that it could look, but I mean, this is what I'd love to see, right? I'll probably start there. That, I mean, if there's there's going to be some production layer, so maybe let's take the example of like a, a e-commerce um, website, right? You'll have a front end, you'll have a, a back end, and this back end, um, you know, will be talking to both, 
you know, machine learning models at some point in its life. Um, but also, you know, there'll be events generated there, um, you know, and, and these events will um, be pushed somewhere like to some event bridge or something, right? And, you know, this will all be streamed into some, well, this is where the data platform comes in, I guess, like into some data layer, um, you know, some data lake or something like that. Um, and I mean, the nice thing about, you know, having something like that is that if every single event that happens on the front end is captured and, and sent that way, it really opens up so many more options for your for your data science. I mean, the other side is obviously like the serving side, right? And I mean, that will live um, in production somewhere. And the, the back end of the website in this case would be talking to this, um, this layer. And I mean, you could do it like also with like a messaging kind of, mes you know, message transport way of doing things or, or with APIs or whatever. Um, but there's kind of not this confusing part that sometimes comes in where um, there maybe isn't a data lake properly implemented or yes, there's a data lake, but not all the sources feed into this data lake. I mean, there's obviously the other side as well that, I mean, I haven't touched on at all, which is like the BI and reporting side where mm. uh, you'll have like a whole warehousing solution. And I mean, that's another whole kettle of fish to, <laughs> to speak about, right? I mean, even... Um, that sometimes like touches even on the, the concept of a feature store in a way, because what we ended up doing in the absence of a feature store is using the BI, the, the warehouse for some of our features. And they made for really good features for some of the, the simple models, right? I mean, they, those, those features are literally like so linked to the business metrics. Um, oh, yeah. That, yeah. That actually worked really well. Right. That's cool. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that can, I mean, the whole, that's kind of like the, the lake house story to a certain extent, right? We've kind of got like the lake and the warehouse and that's kind of like a nice lake house environment. And there's a continuum sort of, of, of how it can be used. Um, but I'd say like the main thing is that to have some sort of data lake that people can access, pull data from freely. So, you know, they don't have to worry about like, have, um, about like pulling down someone's production database. I mean, this does happen too, right? I mean, there's also good designs that use this type of thing where people are allowed to access, you know, maybe source systems for some crazy things. But I mean, typically, if you can just access a data lake and you know you're not going to pull anything down and you can pull that into your environment and train your models and do, do anything like that and then have a way that you can deploy them and, um, you know, expose them in a, in a like fast and efficient way to the, the back end that's going to use them. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's a good foundation. I like that a lot. Yeah, and, and again, it's not one size fits all. Obviously, yeah, no, so I wasn't putting it as well. Like, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and I think you know, but I do see vendors trying to, to trying to sell like an you know an all in one solution and so forth. And I think it's uh, it's a noble endeavor. Um, every every company's different, as I'm sure everyone's aware of. So it's uh, <laughs> um, again quirks and stuff. So. No, that's that's interesting. I mean, and, and you got into ML ops too. I would say kind of back when it was uh, first becoming a thing, right? So, I mean, mm. it's, uh, what what do you think that what do you, I, I I kind of go back and forth on this. Um, part of me, I, I'm wondering about the uh, I guess the maturity of ML ops. Like, what is what is mature ML ops or ML engineering look like to you? Well, that's just a good good question. Um, I mean, I guess there's like some main components that you'd have to see for it to be rather mature. Um, yeah. And I mean, you need to have some way to do experimentation and track those experiments. So, I mean, that's been largely solved by things like MLflow. Um, like, yeah, there's a few other tools. I've spoken to some other vendors that are doing some interesting things there too, but like yeah. I'd say MLflow is the most commonly, you know, used one. Oh, yeah. Um, 
so like weights and biases that type of thing right so you know you can you can do experimentation and um you can always kind of like go back in time and see oh this data was used to train um this model um and this is the code that built you know like the model um yeah and and these are the hyperparameters or something like that so you can always like have that um traceable um, experimentation. You can see what metrics, you know, are, are generated or whatever um, based on that data, like training, out of time, validation, all, all that type of thing, right? Um, then you need a place to store all these models. Um, so some sort of model registry, stores all the, mo like, model metadata. Um, yeah, so that's kind of on the, like, the training side. I mean, obviously access to the right data. <laughs> that's yeah, that would help. And I mean, like, yeah, the whole data versioning thing also, like, I'd say, kind of comes into play there. So, I mean... <laughs> that's where it's, it's still like for me something that I'd like to see done better um, is kind of like data versioning um, not only for like the data engineering parts but also like for the ML engineering uh, it's it's still something that's like something I'd like to see I, I don't know I don't want to go too much into it but I think that's a, a part <laughs> where there's maybe maybe um, still a lot of like things are done differently by a lot of different companies and different teams. There's not that much standardization, 100% on like bringing mm. kind of the data, the modeling and the, the code all together. Um, but yeah, so that's the first part. Um, then a way that you can do like orchestration, I guess, and that's really similar to data engineering in the sense that, you know, I mean, we also want to do, you know, transforming things to in terms of features, also like joining different data sources, that type of thing. So that's really similar to kind of the standard data engineering We've got something like um, Prefect or Airflow or Dagster, all of these different things. I mean, um, yeah, Kubeflow, it's endless, I guess. <laughs> um, but yeah, you'll be executing some something like that. And then there's like the, the serving side, um, which is <clears throat> basically like um, being able to, oh, I haven't also mentioned like in the model registry, you might also have like, um, like, potentially a, a package management system as well. Maybe mm. not big good, but somewhere else, like some sort of JFrog or factory. So all your packages for the code um, get saved there. Then like the glue of CICD that's like ubiquitous, right? You know, managing all of these things, pushing things to the right places, checking things, um, running all the unit tests, integration tests. I mean, that's like all part of the whole thing. I mean, also having like a really good like setup of um, your different like environments where you test things um you know like especially if you're integrating with other teams and stuff um you know having like integration environment super important so kind of those software engineering principles coming into the ml world um yeah then serving um monitoring i guess also even like the data observability side um mm. and that's also tricky because like Compute gets heavy, so you almost want a lot of that to be shifted upstream when you can, you know, to the data sources to be hoping that they're doing that properly. But, I mean, yeah, that's not a solved problem yet, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. It's not a solved problem. Yeah, <laughs> and that, that's, a, that's a discussion for another day. I, that's that's one thing I've been noodling on a lot. Um, more from the data modeling perspective, uh, which I, mm. and the listeners in this podcast know I just um, harp on a lot, but... Uh, well, I mean, you know, if you're relying, if you're using, um, well, I mean, any data really is created at some point, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, if it's created in a way that I think everyone agrees to it, uh, up and downstream, that's great. That's not reality. Um, <laughs> so, you know, app developers typically will, will make data that that works for the app because that's that's what they're paid to do, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as, as you point out, the, the other data quote data use cases aren't typically known, um, and so. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to fault the app developer. It's just they're 
they yeah. have to have been incentivized or were wholly ignorant of, of the need to do that. So, you know, again, it I is mean, what it is. The, the crazy thing is even like ML model developers, like can we can also be kind of um, guilty of the same thing. I mean, we realized like downstream, I mean, um, oh, this model that we developed, we're not even saving all the stuff in the right way that we would want later to mm. do our own. I mean, how terrible. I mean, that's just kind of what happens where you kind of make decisions sometimes late at night. Um, you know, <laughs> um, you know, something needs to go into production. There was a hot fix or something like that. And then you, you're not actually thinking about like the users of that data that you're generating from your model. And I mean, it could be you, <laughs> you know, like three months down the line. So it's, it is a hard thing to do, right? Yeah. Well, and it comes back to that, that um, we were talking about earlier with the, uh, you know, the, those, those things you, you, you don't know about, right? Everyone knows about all the big stuff, but it typically they, like what you just described where you're making that decision late at night, not thinking about what it's going to cost you down the road. I mean, that, those are the things I'm talking <laughs> about where it's like somebody made some decision at some point, And this is pretty big consequences on, on the, uh -huh. you know, how everything else is going to be working uh, that you've built around that um, decision. It's like, Oh, and, you know, and, and the common thing is, Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll fix that later. Right. Exactly. Um, which usually doesn't happen, but, um, so, I mean, this reminds me even of um, we were building some like data pipeline, um, and you know we were at some point writing something also to a data bus, and we we used like it was an AWS, and we used like a dead letter queue at some point. So like, oh, if things go wrong, you know, it'll go in the dead letter queue, um, and then we kind of were like, okay, but we need to process these events later, obviously, right? You know, um, but. We'll deal with that later, I guess. We have like seven days to deal with it until the events are deleted and we kind of moved on. So, I mean, that was also one of those, like we're going to prod like really soon. Mm. At least the events will be safe and we can, we've got a week, I guess. We can figure it out then, which is probably a bad decision. Um, but yeah, that's like a real, real thing that happened. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real thing that happens and it, trust me, it happens a lot. So don't, don't feel bad about it. It's just, it is what it is. <laughs> Well, that's cool. Kind of, kind of switching gears a bit. I think the other thing we're, we're uh, kind of uh, talking about when we're um, uh, hanging out in Munich is, uh, is climbing. It's something I, mm -hmm. I, was, I was surprised. I didn't, I didn't realize you were uh, you're into that, but I, I also climb. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, if I if I come outside, Eva, I definitely want to check out some of those cool sites that you that you showed me some photos of. They look amazing. I mean, honestly, I haven't actually done any outdoor climbing yet in Munich, which is quite sad. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's definitely on the cards soon. But um, in terms of winter, it was like a whole bunch. It's actually mainly bouldering. So I did some like proper climbing um, in South Africa, especially like 10, 10 15 years ago um, in the university days. We used to do like go to some really cool places um, like Pole Rock is one. And if anyone goes to South Africa, you should you should totally do it. Um, yeah, Silver Mine. There's some really cool sites there. So we had a crew that we would you know, do some proper climbs there. Um but yeah, I've just been doing indoor bouldering and trying to get my kids into it. So six-year-old, absolutely loving it. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll hopefully do some bouldering outdoor. I mean, don't have any kit or anything for the climbing, the proper climbing. But yeah, for now, bouldering is at least fun. Yeah, I, I was actually looking around um, when I was in Munich at maybe any outdoor spots there. Surprisingly, there aren't that many uh, directly around mm -hmm. Munich. But if you go north or uh, north, I don't know what direction it is, Austria. Um, yes. Around Innsbruck, that looks like there's a lot of good um, outdoor bouldering. So, mm -hmm. like really, yeah, really I good. mean, those places. I, I think it's it's basically like an hour and a half to two hours, like from Munich. Yeah, um, 
and and there's a lot of cool stuff there. I mean, basically, wherever you kind of hit the Alps and those kind of places, then there mm-hmm. there becomes more fun stuff to do. So, yeah, Munich is cool, but like the really cool stuff, even like on the mountain biking side, um, that's something also on the agenda to, to for us to check out. It's all kind of like an hour or so away. Oh yeah, and it's lovely, lovely uh, country up there too. So, the, mm-hmm. the, but the mountain biking is a uh, is pretty extraordinary. So. That's a lot of fun. Yeah, I hope you I hope you enjoy your summer out there. It's, it's one of the, uh, yeah, I mean, Munich's a, it, it's a beautiful city. Um, I really really like it there. Um, and obviously the Alps not that far. It's a, it's a pretty cool setup you got. So. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely can make a turn again this side. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, awesome. Uh, it's been a good chat. Um, for people who want to learn more about you, how can they do that? Um, they can look me up on LinkedIn. I'm quite active there. Um, yeah, Rebecca Taylor. I think if you put in ML Ops and Rebecca Taylor, I should I should pop up. <laughs> um, yeah, that's probably the easiest. Awesome, cool. I'll put that in the show notes there. And um, yeah, awesome. Well, yeah, uh, it's good chat. Um, I hope the audience enjoyed the chat too. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Hopefully, see you in Europe again sometime. So yeah, <laughs> awesome. Okay.